Hello and welcome to Dr. Scoff and the Prof. I'm Dr. Scoff. My name's Clay Granston. I'm a Doctor of Marketing at Liverpool Hope University. My name is Bryce Evans, Associate Professor in History at Liverpool Hope University. And this is our uh, regular food studies podcast. Yeah, with a bit of food history thrown in for good measure as well, I think. So what are we looking at this week, Clay? Uh, well, uh, what are we looking at? We, we had an interesting conversation. We don't, well, This is probably the third episode in a row that we've done an interview with a lovely um, young lady from, well, she's American. She's Polish-American. Polish-American, well, so that's part of the I suppose theme, the theme of this podcast is uh, the hyphen, the hyphen in foods. Yes. Her research is on hyphenated foods, I believe, Polish-American cuisine. And it's an interesting topic because if you think about globalization and the globalization of food then it's something you come across quite a lot don't you yes yeah but we'll get to that in a minute we've got to, we've got to talk about the name first of all we get to our regular feature of how i don't like the name of this podcast and clay you usually come up with some different suggestions yes well um we just launched on twitter about a week and a half ago and uh, we've had some suggestions through twitter and Go on. along the same theme as last week Go on. which was around uh, star wars I see. I can't. I'm not a Star Wars fan. Well, I can't. Hold on. I can't understand this nerdery. Princess Leia cake. That's actually quite good. That's really good. It's really good. And I've got a big, big shout out to X-ray Cat for that one. Um, or, or my friend Chris. Uh, I thought it was an excellent, excellent one. I must say. What other ones have I got? You dim some, you lose some. You dim some, you lose some. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, this is a higher calibre than usual. Yeah, it actually is, yeah. I've done, yeah, I've done all it. All right, yeah. Now, and as well, because because we, uh, I should mention, we've just broken quite a big barrier in our listenerships. Uh, yes. And, and download subscribers. Yeah, ting, ching, 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 ching. We're actually drinking champagne at the moment uh, to celebrate. Yes, should I open the bottle? Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yes, very good. Uh, so I thought, no champagne, no gain. No champagne, no gain. But why are we drinking champagne? We should ex- ex- explain. Well, I, we, I said we've just broken a thousand listeners, subscribers in a little over six episodes, which is, I'm quite chuffed with that. Which is not bad, is it? And uh, we've had a look at the analytics and all over the world. We were really surprised. So uh, we had people from uh, some of the, what were some of the countries? We some had? of the four corners of the globe. I mean, too many to mention. But let's, you know, the ones that really jumped out for you. Which ones are the ones you were quite surprised about? Well, we can do a shout out to every individual. No, of course. Place. There was the plurination, was it plurination of, of Bolivia? Uh, Bolivia, yeah. Yeah, Bolivia. Big listenership in, in USA. Yeah. Whole range, both coasts. Well, there's also, I mean, you know, we are, we've gone, this has become multinational. And we were quite, quite surprised and um, very humbled. So thank you very much for everyone who's, who's listening. Um, we're, we're, it's, it's amazing. A doctor and a professor talking about food. It's, it's, it's great. Thanks. Thanks to everyone. And on that theme of uh, multinationalism, transnationalism, if you will, yeah. globalization, yeah. we come to this week's theme, uh, the hyphen in food. So Katrina, who we're going to speak to later on, talks about... Polish-American cuisine, but we... I mean, there are other examples, of course, of this, aren't there? There are, yeah. I mean, when we think about these types of food that, that, that sort of are birthed from, in essence, the movement of people, it seems as though, especially when we talk about Polish-American, obviously America is a um, melting pot. It's an immigrant nation, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, yeah, yeah, historically, should I say. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking about, or, or at least trying to find, or, or racking my brain to think of some, some foods which are really good examples of this. Yeah. And I was thinking about the tikka masala, mm-hmm. which of course was made in, in Britain, which is where it was invented. 
Uh, it was to the tastes of the of the British public. They a milder created a creamier, milder yeah. curry. It's a good example. Well. So that you could say, and not wishing to get into the realms of cultural appropriation, no. it could be an example of sort of an Anglo-Indian cuisine. Some other examples... With a hyphen, was, yeah. I mean, I was thinking of, and again, it's to do with immigrant populations, and yeah. of course the Chinese, you know, in terms of historically an immigrant people... Um, you know, examples of Chinese-American food, yep. Chinese-whatever, actually, if you think about it. A good example, I think, in terms of what I've experienced my travels in Latin America, the chinese influence in Peruvian food or Chinese-Peruvian really? food. So How you get many uh, Chinese restaurants, which are called Chifa restaurants in okay. Peru, and it's a sort of distinctive take on the Chinese food. It's not Chinese food as, you, as you'd have it in China, really? but it's a distinctive twist on it. You think of the, your... Typical Peruvian dish, lomo saltado, which is essentially strips of beef, red onion, soy sauce, and, and chips. Yeah. Um, which is a, a good sort of Peruvian Chinese twist. So you can see, I mean, there's too many examples to mention, isn't there? There is. I mean, Tex-Mex is, uh, you know, a mixture of te- Texan food and Mexican food. And traditionally, yeah. Mexican food is very different from this Tex-Mex, which, you know, most yeah. people, when they think of Mexican food, especially in Britain... You think of chili con carne, you think right. of nachos, you think of burritos, yeah. things like that. But actually, the Mexican food is very, very different. Yeah. Uh, they use a lot more fresh ingredients. Yeah. It's a lot fresher and obviously a lot, a lot more spicy. Amazing thinking the historical animosity there, the Alamo yes. and all of yeah. that, how yeah. that's become a food. Um, As cowboys had a bit of an influence there as well. It's really a lot of it's cowboy foods. Yeah, yeah. Tradition. Beans. Beans. But yeah. uh, a... Um, Note of controversy, perhaps we've had recently here in Britain, uh, celebrity chef Jamie Oliver, who's yes. probably familiar to quite a lot of listeners, and he recently or his his launched uh, jerk rice, yeah. which caused a bit of controversy because a lot of people from the um, Caribbean diaspora are pointing out that uh, you know you can have jerk chicken, you can have jerk lamb. Jerk is a seasoning; yeah. it's not a, a type it's of not. rice. No, but I suppose if you're being you know benign in your attitude towards Jamie that could be another example of the hyphenated I suppose is that could Jamaican be. English food or is that just you know an appropriation of a traditional dish by commercial interests well it's quite interesting as well this hyphenation because we, we have to think that why does this why do these mixes of food happen I mean it is movement of people but it's also what's available mm-hmm. in the country that said culture has gone to you know what yeah. what is available there it might not be the same ingredients it might not be the same meats perhaps and katrina is going to cover that and we're, I think yeah. we're going to get to the beetroot and that's the importance of that to you know north, yeah. north european east central european cuisine and I, I will add as well that from a marketing point of view if you if you ever want to do a search around sort of hybrids or these these hyphenated foods that we see a lot of people trying to recreate this in restaurants so trying to sort of almost force it can together. become a messy hodgepodge. It can, it, uh, can be, yeah. it can be a little bit misguided, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were talking about some just before we were that. I mean, I know we've talked about a cronut, for instance, a croissant yeah. and a donut. You know, just mm. this trying to force these things together to create yeah. differentiation in the market. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a bit. Perhaps there are some food stuffs that just shouldn't be forced together. They're just, you know, they should just be left alone. They should be. Should yeah. be. So, right, we're going to go over to Katrina. Katrina Cocolari. Um, transition and trans- technology yeah. <laughs> summon uh, Katrina Cocolari who's going to introduce herself and her research and I'm writing my thesis right now on food and nationalism in Polish American communities and kind of the role that nostalgia and collective memory play in bringing people into the nation 
via food. So that's where I'm coming from. Okay, cool. Interesting, interesting. So why the link between nationalism and food? Why did you, how did you get into that as a research topic? Well, my dad's a chef. That's the first thing. My dad's a chef and my mom was a great home cook. And, you know, I'm from the United States. I'm Polish-American and Croatian-American. And in the United States, that tends to take on a different meaning than it does in Europe. And even if you don't necessarily speak a language, you often lay claim to a cultural identity that's very much in the past for your family. So I started kind of looking at these, um, what are referred to as hyphenated cultures in various parts of the world, but specifically in the United States. So Jewish American, Polish American, etc. And what makes someone feel that way if they don't necessarily speak the language or they aren't connected to their home country in some other way. And I would argue that food is really what makes people or allows people to express their national identity, especially for diasporic groups. So that the hyphen is all important, I guess. Yes, there's there's a lot of talk of kind of this living in between the hyphen or existing in the hyphen or even being the hyphen for these diasporic people that find themselves identifying as part of like a diasporic group. So my findings have been, like I said, I'm focusing on Polish American culture specifically, but I find that it brings people back to language and religion, which are two of the other largest signifiers of nation, primarily through customs that are associated with food. So in the Polish community, the big one is Szwinsonka, which is the Easter basket blessing. And I know the UK has a very large Polish community, so you may well have even seen this happening. But people will, on Holy Saturday before Easter, take baskets of food to get blessed at their churches. And I would argue, there's a lot of historical background to this, but basically people have to become involved in the language just to know like the names of the varieties of food that they're eating. And then also, it's so culturally important, and it revolves around this religious ceremony that even people who aren't religious still find themselves going back to church for this purpose, which in turn brings them back to the nation and back to the culture through this food, even if they aren't attached in these other ways. When I think of Polish food, I think a lot of soups, stews, and sausages. Does that tradition carry over to Polish-American food? It does. There's definitely a strong tradition, too, of kind of, like, naturopath, homeopathy stuff. Like, if you're sick, you need to eat this kind of cabbage because it's good for inflammation or things of that nature. But, yeah, I mean, that's pretty standard. Pierogi, sausages, beets and carrots, horseradish, barley soup. Yep, there's a lot of that. I guess you were talking there about... um cooking for occasions and religious and folk occasions so if i'm thinking about occasional cookery surely there must be some great desserts or cakes involved here oh absolutely there are one of the big things so for this particular occasion there's a bread called babka uh, or pasca and depending on what region you are and you know what heritage is co- your family is coming from it's basically an enriched sweet bread that's often decorated with like a crown of braids uh, or various like religious motifs that are all very symbolic like a braid around the top is supposed to represent the crown of thorns they'll put little like knobs on the top that are supposed to represent the five wounds of Christ 
and it's very sweet. Like I said, it's enriched. It typically has like rain, uh, raisins and orange peels and things like that in it. And then that'll be eaten either by itself or with butter and horseradish and then some ham on top of it. And so it is a dessert, but it's also like incorporated into the richness of everything else. And when I think about Polish nationalism and the sort of long and tortured history of Polish nationhood from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to later on to post-Soviet Union, um, I guess that this uh, these dishes would have greater sort of historical and political significance on occasion? They do. I actually am arguing that... So food has always obviously been important, but given the political strife that Poland has been through as a nation, there were lots of times when food wasn't readily available. And as a result, that kind of blossomed in the United States when there was accessibility to food. So food traditions I have found in the United States to be almost more extravagant than they are in Poland because there was access to food. And you had these groups of immigrants that were coming from um, Poland after various wars, uh, post-Soviet era, and they had this opportunity to kind of extrapolate around the things that they had heard in the past, the sense of nostalgia. And so going to Poland, I've actually been lucky enough to go and experience these celebrations in Poland for both Christmas and Easter. And it's still important, but it's like Poland went on its own trajectory as a nation. And then there was this, you know, group of immigrants in the States that wanted to hold on to this nostalgia, this old way of being this imagined sense of what their food and what their culture was like. Okay, uh, we're back, and Bryce has prepared something that uh, Katrina, uh, well, she gave us a couple of things to, I might say a couple two, to prepare for this week. One of them was an apple strudel. Yeah, Katrina gave the recipe for apple strudel, but to be honest with you, I couldn't be arsed. Well, this is a this is a sort of a current theme that happens every week that you can't be asked to, to either. I usually cook or... You just can't be asked. Well, but I've, I think you'll find this week I've prepared something. You have, so. yeah, and I and I fully accept that, and I think it's I mean, brilliant. look at that. It is very pink. So it's not an apple strudel because the other recipe that Katrina gave us was for. Uh, well, you're gonna, it's you're going to butcher the the Polish language now. Zwickli. completely butchered. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't beaten know. horseradish relish. Beaten horseradish. Relish. in Poland, it's Zwickli in Ukraine. Right. Beats horseradish. So it's kind of Eastern European, not it's Eastern mis- European. Okay. Again, we've got to think about geography, soil, climate. Yeah. Northern, Central, Eastern European. You know, beets. I remember in Ireland, the sugar beet industry used to be really, really, of course, it's a different vegetable, but beetroot, you know, it's a hardy vegetable. It is. Uh, it's a root vegetable. Um, Eastern European complement, particularly served at Easter in places like Poland, uh, served with ham pork so i've actually served this for you tonight on a pork sausage you said it was a kill kielbasa is that right yeah traditional like Polish, a smoked boiled, sausage. smoked boiled sausage okay so lovingly prepared and we just put a bit of the relish on top of it and how yeah. what did you do how did you cook it? well i say cook how did you chop and well it was prepared it was um well katrina advised actually to just buy the the beetroot yeah in a jar okay but to actually get a horseradish root which i did Okay. Um, and it's prepared with salt, sugar, uh, cider vinegar. Um, the root of horseradish. Do you like my pun there? 
Yeah, very good. Originates apparently from the German name Miretic. Yeah. And that mare... Sea radish. Grows by the sea. Is that where the... The name comes from then, so what did you call it? Becomes Me- horseradish. Mare, meaning from Mi- the sea. Miretich. So that sounds like mare, doesn't it? Uh, it finds its way from Central Europe yeah. to Scandinavia. So I suppose, you know, it's it's what we're prepared, what I've prepared here. You're looking at, you know, root vegetables, beetroot, horseradish. You know, vegetables that are hardy can survive through the winter. And this is traditional, very, very traditional. Traditional East European, Polish, Ukrainian. And it's quite a healthy thing to eat, isn't it? You know, it's it's earthy veg, it's yeah. cleansing, it's good for you. Yeah, I mean, I confess I'm not I'm a huge fan of this kind of cuisine. Okay. But I think the way I've lovingly prepared this and, you know, it's, I just see the, yeah. the, just see the, the ego, beets and radish you know. <laughs> sitting atop the sausage yeah. there. I think you're going to enjoy it. So. Okay, well, let's go for it then. Okay. Okay, let's go for it. This looks great, by the way. Thank you. Mmm. Oh, it's quite... It's quite quite tangy mm-hmm. it's um very tangy no it's quite acidic so i've used apple cider how much apple cider did you use a good a good bit you can mm. use um you can certainly taste it you can use white vinegar yeah lemon i believe and a lot of horseradish in there yeah yeah and i've used a bit of sugar as well to take take out a little bit of the zing okay katrina tells me you can add sour cream to this i didn't add sour cream right or creme fraiche um, i mean it's nice I haven't really added strong. many spices because I think a lot of this cuisine, it, you know, it's it's rustic peasant food really yeah. in its essence. So what you've got there, you know, is it is a an authentic beet and horseradish relish. And interestingly, you got this from just you got the sausage at least from just around the corner, didn't you? In a Polski sklep, yes, exactly. Polish shop, yeah. Which I guess is part of that. I guess Anglo-Polish, if we're going to use hyphens. Yeah. So so an Anglo-Polish. Yeah, sure, well, I, suppose I guess it's maybe consistent with the same. Yeah, a couple of generations even. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I used to work in the hospitality industry, I used to work with a lot of Polish, and they were um, predominantly first gen, but a lot of them have stayed. Mm-hmm. And you can see in uh, I was looking at a few restaurants as well, and there's these restaurants popping up now that have got that sort of fusion of the English food and the Polish food together. Mm-hmm. And again, that's probably the birthing of of maybe a new mm-hmm. hyphen, I guess. I like the word birthing because I do feel like the mother of this of this yeah. um, particular yeah. creation here. I'm glad you enjoy it because you know you're often a little little derisory about my my offerings. Well, mainly because you, there isn't usually an offering. That's yeah. probably where the derision comes from. This comes, you know, you're talking to the man who brought brought you the 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 flaming ice cream bomb. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And now I give you sausage. You're welcome. Sausage and and beetroot. And beetroot. Yeah. But isn't it delicious? I mean, will you try another little I bit? I will. I will have another little bit, but. I will go back to the fact that Katrina did say, why don't you try a strudel? But obviously, we don't have the skill to make a strudel. Neither I do, do I. I do, I just couldn't be arsed. I mean, I'm a working man. You want, like our students, one of those ones that says, I could get a first, but I can't be arsed. No, I mean, no, I'm a working man. You know, there's only so many hours in the day. But I'm glad you enjoyed that. And Very we're well done, grateful yeah. to uh, Katrina Coco yes. for her. Uh, recipe she sent on and for her insights into food with the hyphen and then next or very soon should i say is your favorite part of the show and actually this time i'm really into this roll up roll up for its books corner 
Do we have a special theme tune for Books Corner? No. Has it not been commissioned yet? I could get one commissioned, I think. I think we need one. Does it need to be upbeat? Does it need to be mellow? You know... I think it needs to be mellow, cerebral, something you cerebral. would be nice for a the cerebral know, library, assassin. Yeah, yeah. Library, library setting. So, so just Katrina's given us a good suggestion here. I mean, I know this this particular author is a favourite of yours. Right? He is, yeah. It's one of the one of the. Well, we'll talk about it afterwards, I think. But we'll we'll go to Katrina, who's going to give us a little uh, explanation, really, about the book, this particular book, mm-hmm. and then we'll come back and then we'll uh, we'll say our goodbyes. Okay. So I have not read this, but I do have a recommendation, and it's because of Anthony Bourdain. Yes, of course. Um, so big personal hero of mine, yeah. um, and a lot of stuff has come out after his death about some really interesting things that he did just personally and kind of off the record, and there's a book called Grand Forks by Marilyn Haggerty. This book came to pass because there was a woman in... Um, somewhere in the Midwest of the United States, who was writing these very detailed reviews about, like, Olive Garden and Max and Irma's and these very stereotypically bland food chains in the United States. And she was really taking to heart this investment in what was available for her community and how to make it better and how to describe it to others and treating it like it mattered. And... You know, she got mocked a lot online, and Anthony Bourdain actually approached her about a book deal, and this book came to pass as a result of that. Amazing, so, and obviously, yeah. Kitchen Confidential. If we're talking about Anthony Bourdain as well, is is a is a absolute beast of a book. Um, I remember yes. um, the first few years I, I got into the hospitality industry in my early twenties. Uh, I was told to uh, I was told to read that by uh, by some chefs I worked with, and it was absolutely amazing and and scarily it, true as well some of the what what he what he went through um i could see with some of the chefs that i used to work with as well absolutely he was really just an important figure not only for the culinary world but just but just for cultural anthropology yeah. in general in the public eye and i think that's pretty much it uh, we drank all the champagne we're, we're gonna go out and celebrate we're gonna go and paint paint liverpool red yeah we're delighted with uh, this commemorative show 1000 listens plus we're gonna get a plate made a commemorative, really, commemorative plate. plate much like the tacky awful royal souvenirs you tend to get in this country when it comes to uh, plateware we're delighted uh thanks for listening adios and uh, yeah goodbye from princess layer cake <laughs>